Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Saturday. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. This is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. How have you been? I've been okay. <laughs> it's been a little crazy. We're still working on the book project, trying still to finish on the it. Book. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Hoping to be done with writing. Well, not hoping. We will be done with writing by the end of the month. Um, editing, our first round of edits anyway. And we picked a um, a book cover. We did. That was the big event of the week. So we picked a finalized the title of the book and the book cover. And um, it's coming, hopefully, God willing, in February. Yes. So uh, we'll, we'll keep everyone posted. And helping us on the show tonight and... Every week is the one and only Bob Bontrager with Santa Yoda in the background. If he moves his head, there's. Oh, <laughs> there it is. All right. And our moderators tonight are Alicia Moss and Haley Lewis. Awesome. Now, if you are watching us live, please share the show. Even if you're not watching us live, share the show. Yeah. Tell a friend. Like I always say, share it with your friends and with your enemies because it's always fun to rattle your enemies so share the show like the show give us a thumbs up leave a comment and yeah participate with us ask questions we do answer your questions as many as we can live so type your questions in the chat box and just to be clear we are live tonight so if you're watching us live interact with us and plus the more you interact with the post the more it helps to push it out uh, to new people. Cool. So um, one thing that I wanted to let everyone know about before we get into things is that our book groups, our spring and summer book groups start on Monday. So there's only a couple more days to get signed up. Uh, we're doing Nancy Piercy's The Toxic War on Masculinity. That is starting in July. So it's going to be our summer group. Um, Leonidas Johnson's Raising Victims starts. Ooh, that book is so good. Starts this next week with um, Kevin Briggins. Kevin Briggins, and then Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier. That group is going to be led by Emily Bontrager, and so you can still go sign up. Go to centerforbiblicalunity.com backslash book clubs yes and as someone who can recommend i can recommend i've read nancy's book auntie nancy don't let me you know step too far outside of my bounds <laughs> miss nancy's book and it is phenomenal and leonidas's book is also phenomenal i have not had the chance to read abigail schreier's book but um emily I, emily found it very helpful uh if people any uh, parents out there with middle school girls in particular uh, it's an important book to to be aware of. Yeah. It, it's not a Christian book, but definitely she's having some strong comments about the transgender uh, craze that is capturing particularly middle school girls. Yes. So now this week you launched something pretty special that you've been working on for months. Tell us about it. Yeah. So I've been working with Bob on um, a new program for Center for Biblical Unity. We get a number of 
requests. People want us to come, but their group is small. They can't really afford like to come to their church. And yeah, speak and there's. I'm like, they just want us to come over. Well, that would be great too. But uh, yeah, they want us to come speak maybe to their mom's group or to their Ratio Christi chapter or their Colson Center chapter or their TPUSA chapter. Um, but they can't necessarily afford to. All have the, us get on a plane. Have us get on a plane. All of the fees, the travel, and everything. So plane we have tickets a, are expensive. They are, and rental car fees are yeah really shot up since pandemic. So we have a new program called virtual events, where it's just a nominal fee, and you will get access to a catalog of video talks that we have done, and then after the group watches the talk, then we will hop on Zoom for some live. Q&A with the group on Zoom. Yeah, and you can do it all as like one event. So you get your people together and you watch the video and then we hop on right after that. Mm -hmm. And it's a really just a unique way or a unique opportunity to be able to engage with our content and learn. There's trainings, but then there are also, you know, speeches and talks and things like that that we've done as well. So people, if they want to find out more, they can just go to our, our speaking page, fill out the form, and start the process of uh, virtual events. You can check out our social media. You'll see a little announcement about it with a link uh, there to find out more information. So if you have a mom's group and you've been wanting us to come or some kind of campus chapter, men's group, whatever it is, smaller group, this is this might be a good option for you. Awesome. Now, tonight's conversation. Yeah. I'm excited about. I'm super excited. All right. We're going to be talking about starting a house church, how to know if it is for you. Before we get into that, we're going to have one minute and hear from our friends at Impact 360 about the Propel Camp. It's coming up quick. There are still slots available to send your kid to camp. Here's more information about Propel. I'd always heard in church, like, go and make disciples, and they'd always say, that verse and I'm like I don't really know what that looks like at all and then when I got here they taught me like everything I was curious to know about like progressive Christianity and how to talk to an atheist and how to go about witnessing to someone without it being overly preachy or insincere and that helped me so much. It's just been such an awesome week you know going through these questions and really diving into them and not just with me but other Christians it's not like an individual thing it's a together thing we're really strengthening our relationship with the Lord personally but also together we have been given the greatest gift we have been given life and Propel has really made me realize once again how important it is to share that gift with the millions of people out there who don't have that gift that's just ripe for the taking So if you have a high schooler, you want to find out more about Propel, go check out our friends at Impact 360. Awesome. Now, I'm excited about this conversation because honestly, look, okay, this is going to sound wrong. I know. I know we we don't participate in partiality and things like that. I know. But y'all, I'm going to go ahead and put it out there. I think my church is honestly the best church on the planet. Like the, the people, they're real, like it's just live. Like it's so high. I love, love, love my church. I have been waiting to, for so long to be in a church in the church that we're at. And, 
Um, I'm so excited to have our, I don't, I don't know if we call him a pastor because it's an elder team. Like, you know, I'll ask him because I just call him Brett. But um, I'm just excited to be able to have this conversation with him because he and the team around him or with him um, has really created a space where we are we focused on the word. Like the worship is focused on the word. Our time together is focused on the word. Our, we break bread together. It's focused on the word. And so it's just been such a time of growth for me personally, um, that, and, and just community, like, it's, yeah, y'all, our church is like lit. It's legit for when, real. When you first came, you kind of, you and I had a lot of conversations about your tough relationship with the body of Christ. I'm like, yeah, I didn't care for her so much. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. Sorry, and that, and that was one of our frequent conversations of like, Hey, you know, like you're a Christian, you know, having such an adversarial relationship with the body. Like, we got to talk about that. We got to we got to work through that. Well, I also didn't believe that you had to go to church. So I felt like, you know, if. Yeah, like. As long as I'm in a relationship with the Lord and, you know, what do I need these pesky Christians for? Because y'all be working my nerves. I was like, Lord, they were they on my nerve. Jesus, I can't be going to church every Sunday. <laughs> oh, uh, you guys, <laughs> all the humility that has had to take place in my life. But yes. Um, yeah. So we did. We had a lot of fights about that. Um, Just putting it out there. We had fights. Yeah, we did. We had fights about that. She was like, you will be going to church if you live in this house. And I was like, Jesus, I'm going to need you to take the wheel. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, church Going to church isn't optional for us. We're going to we're going to sort it out. We're going to figure it out. We're going to do something. But uh, I think one of the consequences of 2020 is just saw a lot of reshuffling of churches. When we're out on the road, we meet a lot of people who left their church in 2020 mm-hmm. and following some of them suddenly found themselves church homeless. Yeah. Some are still trying to settle in and find a church even three years later. Yeah. Like, you know, trying to as, find a biblically faithful church. Yeah, yeah. Biblically faithful. The parents might like it, but then there's not like something that, you know, engages the youth and yeah. yeah. So even we had our own journey as a family trying to find a church. Um, and it's, it's, been hard. And so we reached out to our friend and and church leader, Brett Kunkel from Maven, um, to come on and talk about his family's efforts to start a house church and to talk about, hey, is starting a house church maybe for you? When is it a good idea to think about it? When is it not? What are the pros and cons? And all of that. So let's get Brett on here and talk to him a little bit. Hello. I don't know where I'm Hey. Two of my favorite ladies. <laughs> How's it going? It's going well. Although it is a Saturday night. I know. We're doing a show on a Saturday night when I should be out by the patio, you know, out on the patio eating a steak or something like that. But... You can roast marshmallows <laughs> as soon as we're done. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much I love you, ladies. All right. <laughs> well, thank you sacrifice. very much. We love you too. We appreciate you very much. And Aaron, oh my gosh. Well, okay, I'm not going to do do that part for you. But will you please tell us about yourself and your family? And, and Maven. And, yeah, Maven. Yeah, well, uh, I am married to one woman right now, and uh, I plan to keep it that way. Praise the Lord. Um, Aaron and I have been married for 25 years. We were uh, both undergrads at Biola University when we met. And uh, and we got married and uh, and and have kind of done ministry together all along. I started in local church ministry as a youth pastor 
oversaw middle school, high school, college ministry. And, uh, and then we joined uh, Stand to Reason, an apologetics ministry. Was there, I was there for 14 years. And, um, and then we, Aaron and I started Maven in September of 2017. And uh, if you're not familiar with Maven, uh, Maven exists to not only equip young people with a Christian worldview uh, and how, you know, how to engage culture and proclaim the truth, uh, but also how to equip the people who are equipping young people, who are discipling young people. So parents and grandparents and educators and homeschoolers and pastors and youth workers, equip them to really play this uh, huge role in the discipleship of their kids. And so, um, so that's Maven in a nutshell. We really want young people to know what they believe, why they believe it, and also why it matters and how it's, uh, it's transformative in how we live our lives. So, uh, so that's Maven. Aaron and I do that together. We do a parent podcast together called the Maven Parent Podcast. We do an annual Maven conference here in Southern California in the uh, late winter. And uh, we are actually this fall going to be uh, opening a new Maven conference in the great state of Texas. So we'll be coming to Texas in September. And uh, yeah, and then uh, we have immersive experiences, which are worldview mission trips for young people. And so we take youth groups, college groups, uh, Christian schools on really uh, the, the, the best program that I have ever seen in the uh, 30 years that I've worked with young people. There's nothing like these programs where we train them to know what they believe, why they believe it. And, uh, and then we put them in situations where they engage uh, a lost world. And uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing. So that's a little bit about Maven and our family. We have five kids. Uh, we just, uh, our oldest son just got married this past weekend and celebrated that. And so we got, uh, let's see, we got two left at home right now. And so I'm just trying to figure out ways that we can get them out of here earlier. And uh, no. It was a beautiful uh, wedding. Yes. Yeah, yes, it was, it was awesome. And it was a young marriage, which, uh, which we love. We love. We, uh, we, in fact, we did a podcast, a two, two, two episode podcast on the benefits of young marriage, looking at some of the data that's come out recently on young marriage and how young marriages have some, some big advantages. So, um, of course, not everyone can get married young. So, but our son and, and his fiance were able to, I guess, I can't call her his fiance. It's now his wife. That's weird. Yes. <laughs> so. Yes. Well, tell us a little bit about your journey into starting a house church um, and, you know, kind of what gave you the idea or uh, what were the events that, that led up into that decision? Because your house church meets in your backyard or around your fire pit. Yeah. Yeah, that well, I'll tell you what, my journey into planting a church started a long time ago <laughs> uh, when I was an undergrad at Biola University. And I had a class, uh, a New Testament class, with uh, a man who was very formative in my life uh, who recently passed away, but uh, Dr. Walt Russell. Um, he taught New Testament. I took his class and he he lit a fire in me for the church. And I had, I remember him talking about uh, the church in particular ways. He talked about 
planting churches. He and J.P. Moreland had planted churches together on the East Coast. And that's when this, uh, I guess, this, this spark uh, was kind of lit in my life. And I had always wanted to be part of a church plant, kind of from the get-go, plant a church, kind of build the DNA into it that you think should be part of a, a local church. Um, and so that that's what it started. And we're, now, I'm going to have Bob put uh, up on the screen real quick, Walt Russell's book, uh, Sustainable Church. Yes. And Walt was formative in my life as well. It's just such a great thing you and I have in common of having, um, you know, similar mentors. And Walt's church, uh, book, Sustainable Church, Growing Ministry Around the Sheep, Not Just the Shepherds, is a wonderful overview of a lot of the principles that we're going to be talking about tonight when it comes to defining a church, the purpose of a church, and and um, what you know, you want a DNA, the DNA of a church to look like any church, not just a house church, but a local church in general. So go ahead. Yeah. So, um, so I blame Walt for putting this uh, fire in me, but never really had the opportunity until in the, the recent past. Well, actually, let me, let me back up about 10 years ago, there were uh, two different groups that we were a part of that were, that met together for about a year like once a month for a year, talking about, talking through what it would look like to plant a church. Uh, At that time, both groups ended up kind of deciding not to move forward. And um, so I, I, you know, it was, it was a bummer in one sense. I thought, oh gosh, maybe we'll never, you know, plant a church. And, uh, but for whatever reasons, those groups didn't plant and, but that fire was still there. Well, there was a good friend of mine, uh, who's the other co-pastor, Jason Smith, he was in that second group. And so what ended up happening was 2020 happens. You've got this, you know, global pandemic. You have the, you know, the 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 church getting shut down for a little bit um, and then reopening. And what our church did, we're, we've been part of a, we were part of a church here in Southern California that transitioned to reopening trying to, you know, balance a, a very difficult balance between, hey, how much do we submit to the the governing authorities? And, you know, wh- when do we say no, enough is enough? And so they're trying to balance that. So what our church did is they started, uh, they had about 25 or 30 of us leaders in the church who hosted uh, home churches to transition back to gathering the summer of 2020. So we hosted a group every other week. And then in the fall, you know, with uh, Governor Newsom's um, lock or his whatever requirements, you you could only have 100 people on the uh, church campus. So our church said, okay, let's have half the home groups, church kind of house churches while they come together on campus and the other half will meet in the homes. And then the next week we'll switch it up, vice versa. And so we ended up hosting kind of a, a house church. It was just a, it was probably at that time, maybe four or five, six families um, in our home for over probably about a year and a half. And what happened is that more people started coming. And one of those families that came was Jason and Danielle Smith, who I had gone to Talbot with Jason and uh, we were good friends with them. And, uh, and, and so they started coming and then Jason said, Hey, are, you know, he was part of this group 
this this uh, house or this church planting group that never planted. And so he said to me, hey, are you interested in planting a church still? So basically I said, hey, if you guys are in, then we're in. And uh, so then we talked to our church. Our church gave us our their blessing to kind of take this group and plant a church. And so that uh, that's kind of how we we got around to planting a church. That's a little bit of the genesis. Hmm. I didn't know that. <laughs> but I can totally see Jason being like, hey, you still up for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, you sit aside, like, hey, you know? So when you when you first started, it was you and Jason. What went into, like, your thoughts about leadership and who would be leaders, um, the formation of, like, a leadership team? And has any of that changed over the last two years? Yeah, well, what's interesting is that we had... Um, we had we had done in those those groups that we had been a part of before we had done some work done some work on core values and philosophy of ministry and things like that and so uh so i yeah i had been thinking about this stuff for a long time and uh and jason and i are uh we, we were on the the same page with a lot of the stuff because we've talked about this stuff before and so one of our you know one of our core values is shared leadership meaning um, I, I think there's room for various ecclesiologies and different setups in the church. There, but it, at some level, it seems to me the New Testament teaches some kind of plurality of leadership. Uh, I think you see that throughout the, the New Testament. And so I personally did not want to uh, plant a senior pastor model or and have a church that, you know, kind of adhered to a senior pastor model of church leadership where it seems to me that there's a very, that's a difficult, uh, uh, it's a difficult situation for a church not to become overly dependent on one individual and for so much to ride on one individual. And, um, you know, so we, uh, we, we, when talking with Jason, it was like, I'm only, we're only going to do this if you, you know, he and his wife were in on this as well. We had two co-pastors who are going to share leadership with a vision that um, there would be other pastors who would eventually rise up within, you know, our church congregation. And we'd, uh, you know, have a plurality um, always more than a, a singular leader. So, and that really, I wasn't, you know, I was infected with that view by Walt Russell. This is what, uh, this was Walt's view. He argued for it from the new Testament. It seems to me, Number number one, there are there seem to be these I think big liabilities in a singular pastor model, uh, and I think we see them in our culture today, especially in a, a celebrity culture, right? Like one of the big liabilities is that the senior pastor is looked to primarily for leadership that often reflects charisma rather than character, mm. right? Well, that's and a whole so, word that will preach. Yeah. And so you have a a single primary leader and he's relied upon as the face of the ministry. He, or, you know, has the platform and in a celebrity oriented culture, uh, it's, it's charisma, it's, uh, it's platform. It's, you know, those kind of things that kind of make the first and lasting impression on people. And a lot of people, let's just be honest. A lot of people go to church, for those reasons. Um, and if he's a good teacher, if he's a, if he's a good public speaker, you know, then that raises his celebrity status. 
And uh, a lot of a lot of us are enamored by personality, and we choose to join a church, on, you know, primarily on that basis. And so, often, uh, you know, th- think about it: when people choose a church, how many of us really look into the the senior leadership or the pastors? That we look into the leadership and look and investigate their character, right? Character often is a is an afterthought. So that's, you know, that's a liability. Um, there's the, the liability of de- de- uh, developing an unhealthy codependence on a singular leader. And so, you know, that's my pastor and, um, and there's a, uh, I guess combined with a lot of the, the widespread dysfunction that's in American culture, you got the senior pastor model. It can encourage this codependent relationship between the pastor and you know the congregation that actually could be detrimental, I think, to the spiritual health of the the, the believers. Um, well, know, and I and- think that we also see in that dynamic that there is this idea of, well, I can't question the senior pastor. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. he's he's sort of the anointed one. And yeah. it can easily, the strong charisma and personality, if he's a strong preacher, strong communicator, storyteller, it's almost like you can't even question yeah. what's happening. And it can, in some cases, yeah. degenerate into a lack of accountability for yeah. character don't, issues. Don't, don't question God's anointed, right, yeah. um, mm-hmm. is what I've heard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's a lack of accountability, uh, you know. And now, look, I'm, I... I'm saying these are liabilities. I know of a lot of good men who are senior pastors. They're in that model and they are, they're great men. So I'm not casting aspersions on, you know, every senior pastor model out there. I'm just saying for me, I looked at these things and said, these are real liabilities. And we have seen, you know, these kind of models, this kind of model devolve into a, you know, bad situation. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, you have one man who's given a lot of power within the church with very little accountability, and this model can encourage that. And so then when you have the senior pastor who falls, you know, he falls morally or he is he becomes abusive in his use of you know power and position, uh, that's just devastating because so much is built on a singular leader. And so those were, were, were liabilities. And then at the same time, looking at the biblical data, I mean, you just see a pattern of plural leadership throughout. I mean, the book of Acts, multiple chapters in the book of Acts where, uh, you know, Paul is appointing elders, you know, and how, how that's cashed out. Uh, was it maybe, you know, multiple elders in a single house church, or was it an an elder? And the reference is to elders of, you know, different house churches, but there's clearly throughout the book of Acts, I think in the, in the epistles, a, a constant reference to a plurality of leadership. And so that was, that really informed my view. Uh, Walt Russell was very, you know, he was very um, formative in that. In fact, in in the, the model that he and JP had planted was a was a plural leadership. Right. And uh, yeah, so that was, that's kind of, so that was one of the core values that we came into the church with. That's good. And you talked uh, briefly there, you mentioned that 
you had thought, done some thinking about core values in general and what you would want the distinctives to be, maybe unpack that a little bit more as to your thinking um, with what you want to see as the key features of, of a local yeah. church and, you know, um, part of Walt's vision in that. Yeah. Well, um, we have nine uh, core values. And in fact, if your audience is interested, uh, I'll send you guys our, you know, our core value document, or you may even have that already. And we're happy to share that. Um, but, you know, our first one is, uh, you know, being missional and uh, whatever terminology you want to use on that evangelistic. But the idea is that uh, God has given the New Testament church uh, the mission of blessing all the peoples of the world. This goes back all the way to Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. This is, uh, you know, comes to a culmination in the work of Christ. Uh, and then Jesus commissions his disciples after the resurrection to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so our emphasis, what we're trying to do uh, with the, with a church, which we think the church is not, is primarily for believers, it's to equip believers. And so, you know, the, the language of the, the Great Commission is go and make disciples. So we are not trying to be attractional like a, a lot of churches in terms of emphasis. Doesn't mean we won't do anything that would, would, would attract people, um, that we wouldn't do anything that would attract people. But that's not the emphasis. Our emphasis in terms of evangelism and sharing the gospel is equipping the people in our church to go into the world, go into the marketplace, go into their, uh, you know, their neighborhoods uh, and, and, and proclaim the gospel, share the gospel and lead people to Christ. And then, you know, come to, come to our church and be equipped and discipled. And so we want to uh, equip people to proclaim the gospel, uh, of course, graciously with, with love and kindness, but also courageously and intelligently um, and so that's one of our, our core values. Uh, a second core value we have is being a church planting church. And that's really a, a significant expression of our being focused on the mission of Jesus is that we want to plant new churches. And now I'm going to share these core values. We don't have these all dialed in. And I just want people to know we're, we're figuring this out too, as we go, we don't know exactly how that's going to work out, but we're trusting the Lord will raise up you know, leadership, um, in our church that eventually will will go out and plant more churches. And, uh, and we, you know, I, I, we are in house church mode now. Uh, we, as we grow, we may have to move into a building. And so we may move out of house church mode, but we do have a, a view that, um, the, 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 the size of the church matters in terms of what we want to try and accomplish uh, with some of our other core values. So we don't see the church becoming some, you know, big, huge church. Uh, you know, it just, there seems to be a kind of a ceiling in terms of what you can accomplish and what you can, the kind of community you can live in together with a certain amount of numbers. So we, we hope to be raising up leadership to plant new churches and maybe they start off as house churches as well. And maybe they stay house churches. We're, we're open to all that, but so planting churches is another core value. 
Uh, sharing leadership, which I already mentioned, that's just a plurality of leaders and uh, multiple pastors. Um, and we focus, our focus on finding new pastors and recognizing um, them in our body is we focus on the character. We look at the, the requirements that are laid out, that Paul lays out in his epistles, and that's what we focus on. And you find that there's only one skill that Paul talks about. That's the ability to teach. Everything else is a character quality. And so we want to share leadership. We want to disciple believers. Um, and, uh, you know, that includes kind of what we do on Sunday mornings is a key part of our discipleship. Uh, another core value is renewing the mind. So we see the mind playing a very central role in our spiritual transformation. Uh, we want to focus on giftedness. That's uh, another core value, unleashing giftedness, not seeing it as, hey, it's the pastor's job to do ministry, but really it's the pastor's job, Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, we want to develop rich community, living community together. We see the New Testament church as family. We want to see that really played out. And so that's a living in community together is another core value. And then two more core values is equipping parents as the primary disciplers of their kids and, uh, and then engaging uh, the culture. You know, not only do we have the great commission, but we have the cultural commission to live out as well. So I know that was a, a big list there, but those are our nine core values that really shape what we're trying to do as a church. And I want to ask a follow-up um, and then Monique's going to go to a question, but I, I really want to have you speak to a little bit about how you incorporate kids. That's what my, my follow-up question is. Okay, okay. Be. So yeah. we're on the same page of, because what we're doing there, I think is pretty unique in how we keep the kids with us the whole time. Well, actually, I think if you kind of broke it down, like what a Sunday morning can really look like okay. for us, um, because yeah. I think from beginning to end, it's very unique. Like this isn't just someone getting up and, you know, preaching an out of context word and nobody can ask a question and now we got to go home. You know what I mean? Like if you can yeah. like lay out what it looks like for us, because I think it's unique and I find yeah. it extremely helpful. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I feel like we, we, we kind of planted this church in a way that goes against a lot of what I've seen and what I've heard in modern church planting practices. And so I think, the way we've done things, probably a lot of modern church planters or church planting organizations would probably look at this and go, yeah, that's kind of off. And, you know, we didn't do what I find to be more of the corporate model where, you know, you do a lot of groundwork uh, beforehand and then you kind of build, you make, you make yourself known in the community with whether it's mailers or flyers and, and you have a place that you are, uh, you know, maybe you're renting a school and then you do a big grand opening, you know, or you invite people out to come check it out and, and, and that kind of thing. Our process was very different where we said, hey, we've got a group of saints here um, who want to gather and be a church and, and plant a new church. And so let's just be the church. Let's just do church together and, and, and you know, um, not, we're not going to do any kind of big grand opening. We'll start in our backyard and see where it goes from there. And so we just thought, all right, let's, let's do church together. Let's gather the saints physically. Cause I think that is, it's a one, um, you know, uh, that, that it's, 
essential in the New Testament that we gather together physically as the saints. And I just say this as a side note, one thing that I've really, I knew this to be the case. I think we saw it with the pandemic uh, and churches shutting down and then being very slow to reopen. And then a lot of Christians not coming back, but, uh, but also on this side of church planting, uh, I, I think you really see as a pastor, uh, the weak, weak ecclesiology that we in the American church have a very kind of low view of the church, even if we might not admit that, but we admit it in how we live and the lack of commitment to the local body and the physical gathering where you see, and we talked to our people about this, but the very first thing, right, to go when there are other options coming at you, the first thing to go is the church, right? Uh, and missing, you know, that Sunday morning gathering. Um, and, and, and what we've, what we're actually in the middle of is a series on teaching why we do what we do on a Sunday morning gathering to help continue to build and strengthen the ecclesiology of our church, their view of the church, and therefore their commitment to the church. And so what we do, uh, the very first thing that we do is basically from kind of 10 to 11 in the morning, we gather and everyone brings food and we do, we just do brunch every week. And that and everyone was, really participates. Yep. I want people to know it's not yeah. like a typical thing where only 10% of the people are doing the work. It Everybody brings something. Now, some people bring homemade things. Some people bring store-bought things, but... Some people stop at Trader Joe's on the way into <laughs> church. <laughs> but that's... Uh, but everyone really... There's a good cultural practice there of we're all going to show up an hour early and we're all going to bring something and hang out. And yeah. you guys got, you know, tables and chairs set up in the backyard with easy ups for shade. And we just hang out and talk for an hour. Yeah. And that, and that's done very purposefully. And that's, you know, part of, partly our reading of the new Testament and the way that we see uh, table fellowship elevated. I mean, especially in the book of acts, right. You have this animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles that they are not even, you know, they're not allowed to share in, in uh, food together uh, because of what it represents. Uh, you know, having a meal together represents intimacy. It can represent uh, acceptance. And uh, so we don't think that, uh, you know, we've, we have a kind of a theology of food where we want to share meals together on a regular basis. And what we've seen that do is it, it creates some really rich fellowship within our body, um, you know, and frankly, in a very busy American culture, it's, it's hard to gather on a regular basis for meals throughout the week, which we want to encourage that as well. But we know that every, at least once a week, every Sunday morning, we as a body are going to come together and share table fellowship. We're not just going to eat. It's not just a pragmatic thing. It's not like we, we, you know, we don't just view this as, Hey, I need to eat so I can survive. No, we see this as a time where we come together, share a meal as a body. And that represents our acceptance of one another. It represents a deep opportunity for fellowship with one another. And so we, we've, you know, we dedicate that for almost that first hour to it. And we also challenge our people because it's easy to see that as optional 
And, and so we just, a couple of weeks ago, I did a, a theology of food for in our, our teaching to really help our people see why do we make sure that we share a meal every Sunday. And this is why it's important for you not to show up at, you know, 1045 uh, or 11 o'clock when we start the formal part of our service, but to be there at 10 o'clock so that we can have that time together. And so that's, that's the very first thing we do is we share a meal. Like you guys said, everyone contributes to it. Everyone brings, uh, you know, they, they bring something and we've just gotten into the habit of it. And the kids and the kids are involved too. I mean, we all sit down together, all ages and sharing the food together. So at a table, it might be Monique and I and Aaron, your wife and your kid or somebody else's random kid there. Smith's kid. Yeah. It's just (laughs) McDonald's kid, somebody's kid. Yeah. yeah. And we're all kind of in it together. So it's not just the adults and the kids are off doing their own thing. I think what I love about it is that it's, it's family. You know, it is the Ephesians, like your brothers and sisters. I'm coming to sit down with my relatives, with brothers and sisters, and Mm. we're talking and we're sharing. It's not just like the small talk. Oh, you know, how you doing? No, it's, it's the deep talks and everybody is kind of just in it together. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, one of the books that uh, Walt Russell had me read was a book uh, called The Ancient Church's Family by Joe Hellerman. And, mm-hmm. you know, it really th- th- it's a really good book because it helps you to see really the messianic community, right? The church as this uh, surrogate kinship group. Uh, that, that, that it's family. I mean, that's one of the primary analogies that the New Testament uses. It's family. Church is family. And, and in fact, for some people, right, we all know there's a lot of brokenness in biological families or step families or whatever, in American families in general. And some of us maybe experience a lot of rejection from our families and the, the body of Christ becomes a surrogate family for us in a very real sense. And that's what we want to want to develop. And I think that's what you see throughout the new Testament. You see Jesus emphasizing this in his, like his response to the disciples in Matthew chapter uh, 12. Uh, you know, I mean, his pa- family is trying to, they're, they're, they're attempting to remove him from the public eye. They want to kind of avoid, you know, him humiliation and, and shame for some of Jesus's actions. And his response is pretty radical. He distances himself from the blood kinship, right? And, uh, and the, the, the blood relationship to his family and professes allegiance to this surrogate kinship group, um, you know, the messianic community, the church, the body of Christ. And so, um, they, so that book was influential and that's what we want our, our church to be. We do want to see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to see the older men as fathers and the older women as mothers um, or aunties and uncles, as some of us, you know, we use that language in our church, but we want the children to, to be, to be seen as a vital part of the body as well. We, so I've done, I've done, you know, local church ministry for a number of years, and we've been involved for all of our lives as believers. And we have a very high view of the church, the, the church is God's plan a, right. In fact, I, um, for, for my friends out there who are speakers and apologists and, you know, 
uh, worldview teachers and all of that. Uh, it, for those who are not involved in the local church, uh, I think you're making a huge mistake. I think that's wrong, actually. To, you know, to for us to get up as and and you know go and, and speak at churches and to equip believers and for ourselves not to be involved in God's plan A is it's just not optional. And uh, so I've always had a very high view of the church. In fact, I think it was a huge benefit that I started in the local church and doing local church ministry first as a, you know, as a student pastor before I ever got into nonprofit or uh, parachurch ministry, because it helped ground me in the fact that uh, the, the local church is God's plan A. Um, and so in that, we, you know, I, so I've been involved with a lot of churches and often the structure of churches is such that you arrive at church and what we do is we, we break up your family. And so the adults go to big church, the youth go to youth group, the children's go to children's ministry. You're separated for the entire time. And then when it's all over, then you gather back together on your way out to the car. And there are huge liabilities in that. Our, I see it with our youth, um, from youth who are disconnected from the larger body to uh, young people who get, end up getting raised on more of an entertainment model of church in, in their youth groups, right? And I get it for youth pastors. There's, you know, there's always a lot of pressure that success equals numbers. And so you know, they're very attractional in what they do um, oftentimes. And, uh, and, and then you have the separation of generations. So then young people, they, they can grow up in a church and have almost no significant interaction with older generations. And, you know, we just silo them off. And so then when they graduate from high school, they've got no connection to those old people in the big church, right? And they have no significant relationships. There's no other additional mentoring and we put such a heavy burden on mom and dad because we silo the kids off. So then they don't have these other significant adult uh, people, these uh, significant adult Christians who are helping in that discipleship of them. And so we, uh, and, and, and so there's, I mean, there's a, a ton of liabilities. We wanted to start off with a view that said, hey, our, we want our kids in with us as much as possible for a number of reasons. But um uh, what, what, so what we do is we, we know there's going to be a trade-off and we talk about it all the time in our church, uh, is that there's going to be some controlled chaos because we're going to keep the kids with us as much as possible. And that means even some of the babies and the little toddlers, and sometimes, you know, at house church, we, we pretty much have an enclosed backyard so they can't escape out into the street, but they can roam around the yard and, uh, you know, you guys see like little Noah, who's I think two years old now, um, he's, he'll wander right up in the middle of teaching. I'll be teaching and he'll just wander right up to me and just, you know, stare at me. And, <laughs> you know, and we let, we have a good laugh on that, but we see such value in him growing up in that context because we want him to be worshiping with the other adults. We want him to experience uh, worship through song and music. Uh, we want him to see us uh, teaching and engaging God's word. We want him to uh, be, uh, uh, you know, uh, at this point of his life, uh, a, a participant by watching like communion and, and that we do communion every week. 
that we, you know, we, we close with the doxology and, and all of that. We want the kids to feel like they are just as much a part of that and that they are an important part. They're not the church of tomorrow, but they are an important part of the church today. And then, and, and so we've just seen, it, it's been so great because it doesn't just benefit the kids. It benefits the adults. It's been so fun to watch adults develop relationships with the children, you know, and uh, we want those adults to have significant impact on those children as they grow up, as they become youth and they need additional mentors and additional voices in their lives. And so we're okay with some of that control chaos. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, now, um, what we've also seen though, is as we raise the bar for our kids, they step up. So at first they were a little more unruly, but as they've learned, as they've been in this culture where adults <clears throat> are raising the bar of expectations for them, I've noticed they, they sit and listen more intently. Uh, they're not as unruly. In fact, we are very purposeful in engaging them during the teaching time. So almost every Sunday morning, you know, uh, Jason and I, when we prepare to preach, we are thinking of different questions for the kids that are just going to be for the kids. And we'll often say, okay, for the 12 and unders, this question's for you. We don't want the adults talking and, and the kids will engage. And the kids, they, I mean, it's amazing. The, 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 some of the, the insight that comes out of the kids as they are chewing on the word with us. And they ask and I, some of the best questions. Yeah. I want to just make a few things even more explicit there. So like our first kind of 50 minutes or so is brunch. Then we have about a 10 minute transition where we're folding up the tables, moving the chairs around. And this is on average about 40 people a week. It, it can fluctuate a little bit up and a little bit down, but I think on average, it's about roughly around 40 people a week. And then yeah. we get into it and, you know, we have kind of a little opening scripture or um, call the, the word. catechism. Yeah. But, we, and, and then we get yeah. into the catechism That's the part and, you know, we have, Where we, we all the adults just be shamed by the kids. <laughs> and so the kids are working on memorizing their catechism questions, but we have a discussion about the catechism question every week. And we use the new city catechism. It's a free app on the phone and um, we put it up on the screen, but we're all in it. It's not like, well, only kids are learning the catechism. It's mm. everybody. And we have an op opportunity for the kids to recite their catechism answers. The opportunity is for the kids and the adults to recite the catechism <laughs> question and answer, but yes. only the kids are really like, just, yeah. I don't know, the, do we, we, we are challenged as yeah. adults. We don't have to, yeah. we need to step up our game. And then we well, have that. That's, that's one of those aspects where the young people, they challenge us as mm -hmm. well. And they model for us uh, there. And of course their powers of memory at that age are so good, but they, you know, they, they work at it and the kids memorize it and they put up the, put the adults to shame. So that's some good pressure for the adults. Cause I'm, I sit there and squirm and go, Oh my gosh, my kids. In fact, I was just doing uh, working on the catechism with my kids a couple of days ago and they were they were laughing at me because I was, I was nowhere near where they were in terms of their memorization of the catechism. So it's not just, Hey, we are raising the bar for the kids. The kids raise the bar for us as well. And then we have some worship time. And if people are thinking like, well, I couldn't start a house church. We don't have any musicians. Well, in the beginning, we just play songs on YouTube and sing along. Mm -hmm. And so it's real, no frills. And if we have some musicians there that week, awesome. 
awesome. They'll jump in and, but it's not a big, like complicated setup. It's not a light show. It, you know, it might even be like your teenage daughter, um, you know, helping us, Ella, helping us on the keyboard, you know? And one thing we've been experimenting with is just singing acapella. We had a whole message on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, just two weeks ago, we had no musicians and we just sang uh, a few worship songs, Mm -hmm. acapella, just voices only. And it was actually a really rich time just hearing the voices. And uh, and part of it is, you know, we don't have a very good culture in the U.S. of singing. And even in the church, we, we don't I don't think we have a really good culture of singing. So that was a really cool thing. But, yeah, if you don't have musicians, you don't have musicians, you have voices, though. And, um, you know, and so it's we're slowly, I think, developing that we've we've yeah used videos and stuff. But, uh, you know, the more we do the acapella, I'm thinking that's if we don't have musicians, that's the way to go. And then uh, another really interesting thing you guys do is in the quote unquote sermon time, teaching time, whatever you want to call it, it's very interaction, interactional. I mean, and you kind of alluded to this, but I want to highlight it even more to make sure people don't miss it, that it's not just let me stand up here and give you this very polished TED talk uh, of where the Bible is kind of in the background somewhere. I mean, when we were going through the Gospel of Luke, we would sit there and read two or three chapters a Sunday in the whole thing. We would take turns reading it. And then you might offer a few comments, but people can raise their hands. People can ask a clarifying question. A kid can ask a clarifying question. And you ask us questions of like, hey, what's the main idea? Or what's the main idea of the book of Luke? What's the key verse? Regrounding us to the section in the book. So you're teaching all of us how to have good, sound um, Bible study skills as we go. So it's not just a 20-minute motivational talk. Yeah. And that's that's done purposeful. And even as we grow, I mean, we've thought about, okay, how do we continue to keep our, our services interactive like that? Uh, and so there will be, you know, uh, there's obviously prep that I do as a pastor and Jason does as a pastor on the text that we're studying. But we also, um, like you said, want to help teach our people to, to uh, do exegesis well and do interpretation, biblical interpretation well. We want them to engage with the text and not just kind of uh, take what I've maybe regurgitated for them um, in, you know, three points or something like that. And so when we, when we are going through a, a text of scripture, which will usually take a good chunk uh, and we, we went through the book of Luke fast to try and um, get a, get an overview. So we do two chapters a week. But when we went through the book of Acts, it was like one chapter a week. Yeah. But we the first thing we do is we have a public reading of scripture where uh, and we encourage our people to bring physical Bibles, even and not not just using uh, Bibles on their phones, but physical Bibles. Um, and we read through that chapter together out loud first. And so when, you know, when we're reading, you know, some of those chapters in Luke, I mean, we're dedicating 15 or 20 minutes to reading through that. And then we, we spend time, yeah, getting observations. What are people noticing in the text? And through that process, trying to get them to attend to the text, because here's what a lot of people do. They read the text and then they look up and then they just, you know, their thoughts come off their head. Oh, well, you know, I, I heard this and 
uh, you know, this and this, and, and we're constantly trying to say, okay, where in the text did you see that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you, you said, you know, you, you had this observation, what gave you that observation? Or even someone points to a text and says, well, this is what it seems to, you know, to be saying, or this is what I noticed. And it's like, well, why, you know, and why did you, why, why do you think he's saying that here? Do you think he could mean this? And, and we just really want the body engaged with the biblical text. And then we'll do some teaching as well, but it's very interactive. We want people chewing on scripture and because we have a, a high view of people uh, and we want people in God's word. We know that engaging with God's word yourself is, is uh, a primary spiritual discipline and sometimes our teaching can hinder that. In fact, sometimes our teaching and our teachers can get in the way of the biblical text. Uh, you know, and so we end up relying upon a charismatic teacher or an insightful teacher to, you know, chew things up and then offer it to us. And we want people to go directly to the word and get that, learn how to, you know, chew up that meat themselves. Of course, there's an important role for uh, teachers as well. But so we have a very interactive service where people are, you know, and it gets a little unruly sometimes, like there may be disagreements or someone may say something that's just out of left field and you're trying to figure out how to bring it back. Uh, or some kid says something hilarious and we all crack up, right? And, <laughs> and things like that. And, and, or people will ask questions that I, as the teacher, I, I don't know the answer to that. That's the, that's the, one of the uh, humbling things about this as a teacher, as a pastor, is that any given Sunday, there's a question that someone might ask about the text. And it's like a really good question. And I, I haven't thought about that, or that wasn't part of my prep, or I just don't know the answer. And so there have been plenty of times on a Sunday morning, Jason and I have said, gosh, great question. I don't know. Let, yeah. You know, let's do some homework on that this week. And, uh, and so it's, it just for us as pastors, it keeps us humble as well, um, to, uh, to have this kind of interactive, uh, service, but, uh, but we really all get to chew on the word. It isn't just, Hey, the pastor chewed on the word and processed it. And then now he's given to us this, this week uh, it's, we're all kind of doing that. And I mean, again, I just want to highlight the kids are a huge part of that too. Yeah. I love that part of of our time together, just digging into the word and being able to read the word together, read the word out loud um, and being able to dialogue back and forth and ask questions and, you know, hear other people's comments on it and just sit and learn as well. So yeah. I was I was going to just mention just to round out the conversation about how our service looks. The, yeah. the final movement is the Lord's Supper, which is something we do every week and then we have the doxology at the end and a different uh, person or couple will kind of lead the, the meditation on the Lord's supper and read the scripture for that. And um, then, then we're kind of, we're kind of done. And then we fold up the, the, the chairs and the, the easy ups and clean things up and, and, you know, we're ready to hit the road, but um, we shared meals together for Holy Week, we did some special mm. things for Holy Week and for yeah. right before Christmas. And there's just well, trying to help us learn the rhythm of the Christian calendar. Yeah. One thing I was going to mention is just even after the service. So typically now our services kind of go from with the meal, 10 o'clock until about 12, 15, 1230. Yeah. 
And then people linger Yes, yes. and that we just fellowship afterwards. And oftentimes people aren't leaving until one thirty. I love the linger. And, and I know I do too. And it's, that's when, you know, some really good fellowship happens. You'll see, you know, maybe people talking about something deep and then they, they stop and they pray for each other. And there's just continuing, uh, you know, fellowship and family time that's happening. But if you think, you know, you, you show up at 10 o'clock and you're there till 11, 12, 1, 1 you know, you're there for three and a half hours. And that's very different than a lot of modern churches yeah. where it's like an hour service, hour 15 service. And then, you know, you're in and then you're out and, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and oftentimes, I mean, the, the quantity of time makes a difference. Yeah. And so our church has really come to really set aside that whole Sunday morning um, for worship and fellowship and, you know, all that, all that good stuff. And, um, and then we, like you said, I think another big part is we, we try, we try to get other people like through the interaction, people are getting involved, but also through leading communion. Um, and there's, there's an instruction. So for those who are worried about, you know, oversight from the pastors, there's instruction on how we want, how we think the, the, the communion should go, but we want, it's been so rich to have different families week to week to week, share their insights before we partake in communion together. And uh, yeah, we are going to put a pin in this conversation just quickly and hear from our sponsor, Birmingham Theological Seminary. And when we come back, we are going to take your questions. We have a ton of questions in our chat. Um, I haven't seen the chat on Facebook, but there's a ton I know on YouTube. So we're going to come back, take your questions, and then we are going to round out our conversation with Brett Kunkel. If you want to know the worth of a seminary, go take a look at their graduates. Our graduates are all over the world. They're planting churches, they're revitalizing churches, they're translating the Bible, they're starting discipleship movements. It's heart-shaking, life-changing, and just mind-expanding of what God is doing. You know, sometimes I really do have to pinch myself that what I get to do with the ministries at BTS, the engaging with the students and the impact that God uses us to have on the lives of our students, it's a pleasure, it's an honor, and it's a joy. Jesus is still building his church. So we need to equip the pastor teachers who equip the saints. We need to equip the elders who shepherd the church. And I am grateful that Birmingham Theological Seminary is available to be a part of the expansion of the kingdom of God in these very crucial days. If you are interested in a very good seminary, check out Birmingham Theological Seminary. That's where Kristen and I both attend. It is small class sizes, very affordable, and they are biblically solid. Yep. Okay, let's go to YouTube. Uh, Pam is asking a question about uh, how do you deal with issues that happen in small churches where everyone is up in everyone's business in dysfunctional ways? (laughs) I Do you have any thoughts I love about that, that? question? <laughs> yeah, that is one of the uh, reasons why I think a lot of people hesitate hesitate to plug into a house church because there is this um, th- there's just a closeness and a level of accountability as well that is just part of the nature of a smaller group. 
Here, a couple things to say. I think number one, I think we need to constantly critique our American culture. And when we look at, I think, American culture through the lens of scripture, what we discover is that American culture is overly individualistic. We actually want too much space from one another. Uh, we're not involved in each other's lives enough. And so there is, uh, there's huge liabilities to the over-individualism of American culture. And in fact, Walt Russell talks about this in his book, uh, Playing With Fire. He talks about kind of the, the, the Western model. Um, and what we see in scripture is a, you know, in Paul's letters and throughout the New Testament, such an emphasis on unity. In fact, an emphasis on unity where you set aside your rights. Uh, you, you know, in, in the, 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 I mean, Paul's discussion about Christian liberty in Romans 14, right. For the sake of the body, that's just throughout Paul's letters. So I think there, there is a, a part of it where we Americans socialized by American culture are going to be uncomfortable at first with kind of being up in everybody's business and all the dysfunction that we're going to experience in that. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that's, I think that's one aspect of it is realizing, yeah, actually maybe we've been shaped by American culture in unhealthy ways that we kind of say, Hey, give me my space. Um, and so that, that's one aspect. I think the other aspect is embracing the mess. It, look, the church is, is filled with saints Right. And this is it's interesting. Paul's the, the way Paul addresses all of his letters. He doesn't say, hey, to the, uh, the sinners in Ephesus, you know, to all those failures over there in uh, Philippi. No, he calls them the saints to those who are in Christ Jesus. Right. So the, the, the church is filled with these saints who are in Christ and yet are in the process of sanctification and who are messy and who are messed up in various ways and who bring a lot of our baggage and sin into this whole deal. Part of it is realizing that's all of us, including the leadership. Um, and that is just a part of being the church and you, you need to embrace it. Right. And so if we can all come with that and have a culture that develops in our church that, yeah, we know we're going to hurt each other. We're going to mess things. We're going to be messy. We're going to be in each other's business. And, and that's actually a good thing. Um, and, uh, you know, then, then that helps us to embrace some of that mess and take a whole different mindset towards it. Um, and kind of another aspect of this is that we see ourselves as family. And so family doesn't just quit on each other when it gets difficult, you know? And in fact, we're, we're, uh, our plan is to eventually develop a membership process where um, we, we articulate what we're committing to when we're, when we're part of this local church so that we realize, hey, uh, there are obligations I have as a member of the local church, and there are obligations of the leadership and the shepherds to the body as well, and vice versa. I want the people in our church to care about my spiritual development as I care about their spiritual development. And I'm going to invest in that. Yeah. And so, so I think a lot of it is a mindset, uh, mindset shift. 
Um, uh, part of it is, is, uh, yeah, I mean, so much of it goes back to kind of what we believe. We believe in the uh, grace and forgiveness, uh, you know, that was provided to us by Jesus on the cross. And we're going to have to learn how to exercise that within the life of the body, um, a commitment to seeing each other as family, and then just getting it. Yeah. Embracing that mess. Ministry is messy. Church ministry is messy and we like it. We need to like it. I think another key factor that I've seen in, in our house church is that the leadership needs to be very spiritually and emotionally mature as well. Mm-hmm. And because you guys set an example, and I think that that trickles down to the rest of us of this is yeah. how we interact with each other. This is how we um, participate with each other. And I think you can't overstate that because especially in a small church, house church situation, if your leaders aren't spiritually mature, emotionally mature, that also has a damaging and trickle down effect. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we, for leadership, we put a big emphasis on the character requirements laid out in the new Testament, you know, and I, yeah, you, you're right, Krista, we can't overstate that the emotional and spiritual maturity of the leadership is very important. I think it's important. Um, the idea of being known too. You know, just being known in the body and that you don't just get to float in and float out. Like if somebody isn't at church, the first thing is like, well, where are these people or who you you always say, like, you know, look around and who do you know is missing? Um, check in on them because we're family. Yeah. yeah. So were you going to say something? No, okay. I was going to go on to the next question. All right. So I think in all of this, one of the concerns that I have in having the conversation about the house church is sort of knowing when it's appropriate to think about starting a house church, because I think that that could be used as a cover story for, I can't get along with people. So I'm just going to go over here and do my own thing. Mm -hmm. And so how do you think that issue through of, you know, do I really, should I really start a house church in my situation where I'm having difficulty finding a biblically faithful church versus I just can't find a church that teaches exactly the way that I want or this church only yeah. play hymns. I'm going to yeah. start a house church. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh gosh. That's a, that's a tough question. I, I think as uh, you know, through experience, I've come to realize that the Lord often uses uh, conflict to start new work kind of with fallen human beings in a messy church. It's always going to be messy. It's always going to be messy. And sometimes it's even out of our uh, impure motives <laughs> that God, you know, builds this church. We see this even in the New, New, New Testament with some of the things that, you know, uh, Paul talks about and some of the conflict there. I mean, if you read through the book of Acts and the epistles, I mean, you're going to get a clear picture that, hey, there was conflict from the beginning. So it's going to be a mess from the beginning. I, I think ideally what you want to do is you want to get a clear vision of what the church is. You want to develop your ecclesiology, your theology of the church. And I think that's, that's been a driver for me. It's like, what is the church? What should the church be? What should be the values of the church? What should we be doing here in the church? And as you hone that and develop that, and if you can plant out of those motives saying, hey, 
Uh, and that, I think that was a big motive for us. We, we could have stayed at our past church uh, here in Southern California. We could have stayed there for years and years and years. We had already been there for 12 years. Very comfortable place to be. Love the pastors there. Uh, had tons of good friends. But it was our conviction uh, to leave kind of that comfort. It was our conviction that we need more and better churches, especially seeing the last few years how weak the church is in the U.S. and having a clear vision, I think, of what the New Testament teaches about the church, that that's what we planted out of. And I think that's the healthiest way to plant. And so, um, and yet there's room for the spirit to take all of our messiness and, and, and plant new works and for God's spirit to work through those as well. Uh, but so that's what I would, my recommendation would be, hey, do some study, do some study of the, of the New Testament Get, start outlining what you think the church is, you know, read some systematic theology. Mm. Uh, and I would encourage everyone to read Walt Russell's book, Sustainable Church, as uh, and really get clear on, on some of those things and uh, plant out of that. Plant out of a vision of what the church can and should be. And then that, that keeps you going because it's not easy. I mean, it's, it's been a lot of work for our family. It's been a lot of sacrifice. And we've hosted now in our backyard for a couple of years. It's worn out our grass, you know, and things like that. Um, and that's okay because we have this vision of what the church is, the purpose of the church. And, um, and you know, that, that it is, uh, Christ's primary vehicle to reach the world. And so that having that vision keeps us going. I hope that makes sense. Do you think more churches should scale back, like um, maybe the mega churches or even, you know, churches with, you know, a couple hundred people? Should they scale back, in your opinion, and reconsider a home church model or something that's just more intentionally focused on the community of believers in, in the small group context? Uh, well, I don't think they necessarily have to focus on a house church model. Um, I, a lot of churches, I think, do that in, in kind of their small group program because they realize that you have to get smaller. Like, let's say there's 500 people at your church or 1,000 people at your church. Well, to be known, to be held accountable, to be invested in one another's lives, to be able to meet people's needs the way they, they need to be met, you've got to be smaller. Uh, so that could be in, in, in house churches. It could be in, in small groups. It could just be in kind of, you know, planting new churches. So I think my ecclesiology gives a lot of room. Like, I don't think, oh, okay, the, the house church model is the only model. I see a lot of the benefits. I see the challenges too. I think it, it's the, the house church model. One of the challenges is just if you have one, you know, family that's, that, that is, um, you know, carrying the burden of hosting, every week, that can be a big burden. And, you know, I don't, how long that could be sustained, I'm not, I'm not sure. If you have a model where, hey, maybe, you know, families are, are rotating, maybe that's a little more sustainable model. But I think you, you can have the value of church as family, right? And this is where our orthodoxy, our theology should lead us to action, orthopraxy, right? So, uh, but if you have a high view of what community should look like in the New Testament church, it doesn't matter whether you're in a building or whether you have 50 or a thousand, you should constantly be working. The leadership should constantly be working to develop that in, in the body. And so 
There are things about how a smaller church, obviously a house church is going to be a smaller group that you're going to be able to do more easily. But even as we grow, we're going to have to keep, we, we're going to keep developing, cultivating this culture in our church to where if we have a hundred people, we're still, we still view each other's family. We're still involved in each other's lives and, and things like that. So I think you, there's just an intentionality of developing that culture from uh, uh, of that value that you have. And so this is why we've explicitly said in our church, church is family. We want to develop, we, we develop and we build and cultivate community. So we got another question um, on Facebook. This is from our friend, Brandon Rhodes, who is also a church planter. Um, he uh, is asking, I lead a church that met in our home for a while. Did you find that meeting in a house deterred some people from coming? Yeah, I think we do see that. And that's where the smallness and the intimacy is very threatening to a cold and impersonal American culture, right? Or where it's like a lot of big churches, you can kind of walk in the back. And if you, if you don't really want to get plugged in, you just want to kind of check it out from a distance, you can do that. Whereas a house church, you show up at 10 o'clock and now you're going to have food with these people. And these people are going to sit down and they're going to ask you questions and they're going to get to know you. And for some people that is, they're not ready for that. Those who stick around and, and, and have stuck with it, I think what they find over time is that this is really rich. And this is, oh, this is, you know, I've been conditioned by American culture to like say, eh, I don't know if I want you that, you know, I don't know if I want to get that close yet. Um, so yeah, I think it's a hindrance for some people and for others. They've dived in and they've experienced the, the, the family and the, the, the community and, and they've, that they've stuck. And, um, but I think in general, given kind of cultural factors, given what a lot of churches are like, yeah, it, it does, it does turn uh, some people off and I'm not sure what to do about that. Yeah. Um, ex except to tell people, Hey, stick around maybe and taste this a little yeah. bit more taste and see what this is like over time. I, I'm wondering if you've also had feedback along those lines about the lack of programming, like there's not children's programming or teen programming per se. Mm -hmm. And we are very conditioned to think that's a, that's an important ingredient for a successful yeah. Christian family. Have you, yeah. have you had any feedback about that? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, part of that is some of that stuff will develop. Uh, we, we've told people, look, a lot of the ministry of our church is not going to be top down. It's not going to be necessarily initiated by the leadership. We want it to be we want the, 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 we want to, we hold a high view. We hold to the priesthood of the believers. We hold that people are gifted spiritually. The Holy spirit has gifted them with spiritual gifts that they are to use in the body. And so some of that stuff hasn't happened yet because nobody's taken the lead, you know, whereas a lot of us are spectators and we're like, Oh, the professional pastors, they, you know, uh, the paid pastors, they, they, they are supposed to do this. And so, uh, but yeah, so we don't have, maybe a children's program right now. And for some people, they just, that's what they're used to. And they are not used to having their kids with them and they, and they don't maybe value it as much as we think they should. And, um, and so it's, this model just doesn't work for them. They, they, they won't, you know, hang with it. So that, that, that can be a hindrance as well. Um, yeah. And, uh, so, but there is, 
I think, but the, 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 I guess the good side of it is we're not overly programmed. So it does feel much more like family. And what happens is there's more room. It seems like for, you know, and this word maybe is overused sometimes, but just kind of organic stuff to happen where we didn't program these families to go out for, you know, a meal uh, together, but that's what happens after church. In fact, I remember a few weeks ago, we had a, a young college gal who came and visited for the first time. And one of the older families in the church afterwards, they invited her to go to lunch with them, you know, and, and they had a great time at lunch, getting to know her and, uh, and, and, you know, welcoming her in and that wasn't programmed. Um, and so sometimes programming can get in the way of just real relationship, real organic stuff. I'm looking for a meal. I'm going to have to find out who these older people are. <laughs> I'll let you know on Sunday. I'll yeah, tell you who to, yes. who to target. Yeah, I think you. they pay. I think they pay. Th this, the these are the too. older people I would like to meet. Yes. <laughs> So one more question here, Brett, kind of combining a couple of questions on, on YouTube is about m the money question. Like, um, you know, how do you handle tithing? Um, do you see any value in like the 501c3 status? Are you, uh, do you see any pros and cons to not having that, you know, for the government compliances? Like any thoughts that you have along yeah. those lines? Well, we're, we're still trying to figure that out ourselves. Um, we are, uh, we've, uh, we're in the process of starting uh, the 501c3. We really haven't done giving. And part of that is because I, I've got a full-time job. Jason has a full-time job and, uh, we know the additional work that comes with, um, collecting money and recording it. And all that stuff. So we kind of drag. It's a our lot feet. of paperwork, people. Lots. You need to get that tax benefit for the giving. It. Yeah. If we didn't have that, it would be so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're in the process of starting to move that way, but we've just dragged our feet on it. Instead, what we've done is we have presented needs to the body uh, when they've come up, and we've said, "Hey, respond." And so, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Gosh, we had a, a young gal in our group who wanted to, in our church, she wanted to go to Summit Ministries, a two-week worldview training conference, but she needed money not only for the trip and the, or the conference, but also the travel. And then she was going to have to take two weeks off of work and she's living her, on her own as a 19-year-old. And so we ended up raising money for her to help her pay her rent. So she go for this two weeks of training and our body just responded and gave several thousand dollars mm -hmm. to help equip her. And so that's what we've done. And yeah, uh, you know, there wasn't a tax benefit for us, but uh, you know, people were giving out of their uh, cheerful hearts out of their generosity. And so, yeah, I think we're going to move towards, you know, some giving so that there's some things that, that we'll be able to do if we, as we continue to grow, I mean, we have about 60 people who are involved in our church. Like you said, you know, probably every Sunday we average like 40 ish, but if we continue to grow, we're obviously not going to turn people away, but we're going to have to figure out, you know, some things to do in terms of location and stuff like that. And so we might have to rent a place, uh, you know, so we're, we're working through all that, but um, it's been nice for a, uh, the first kind of year and a half of this church plant, not having to collect money <laughs> and just saying, Hey, give to the work of the Lord as we see it coming up. And, and we know that our people are also giving to, 
not nonprofits and parachurch work and other works. So, um, you know, and our view is, you know, the, the, the new Testament principle is, um, you know, giving cheerfully and generous and generously. So yeah, we're in the middle of figuring that out. Yeah. That was, that was a really good response. It was the first time that I had ever seen, um, a give like that. Cause normally like you go to a fund and we see if we have any money in the fund and you know, all of those things. And just, I mean, even if this girl wasn't who she was, like she's dearly loved and everyone wanted to step up and support her. But I can even say from even my own experience, um, I don't, I, I, we haven't made this public on the show, but I recently moved and the church like did a housewarming thing for me and I wasn't even there. And then they came over and like set up my apartment. Put and together your furniture. Put together my, I wasn't even home. You know what I mean? And so it's just, it's really the, the, camaraderie isn't even the right word it is really the family you know like we're gonna support each other as family and that's what we're gonna do yeah well brett tell people how they can stay in contact with you at maven and find out more about what you and aaron are doing there yeah well um you can go to our website which is maventruth.com and uh, if you scroll to the bottom, you can sign up for our email newsletter, which is a resource newsletter where we try to equip uh, uh, young people and the people who are discipling young people uh, with a Christian worldview and all kinds of resources we have. We have a YouTube channel uh, where we post video, our video podcast. You can look at any podcast uh, platform and, and find the Maven Parent podcast. And uh, so you can connect with that connect with us that way. And I would say if there's anybody in Southern California, Orange County area who want to come check out our church, we've had plenty of people come, come visit and see what we're doing and even become part of it. So uh, if people uh, are interested in that, uh, our, our church is open. I would tell them maybe to just uh, shoot you guys a message Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and then we'll get in touch with them and love to have them come visit our church. Yes. Well, thanks, Brett. Thanks for doing this. You know what? Yeah. There was a, a comment on oh. on the YouTube stream. We don't have to pull it up. I just want to address it because okay. someone said it would make it hard to go underground if like if the church needed to because of a 501c3 status. And um, I'm not sure who the person is, but it just flashed before my eyes. And I just wanted to address that because um, I believe Brett would be of same heart, but you can answer that. But I know for us here at the Center for Biblical Unity, I mean, if if the government ever required anything of us that was unbiblical, unethical, something that, you know, we couldn't, you know, stand by and support. And I mean, it's not the most optimal situation, but we will let it go quickly. The 501c3. Yeah, Yeah, we will let the 501c3 go because there's nothing more important than upholding the word of God and being in in alignment with what he says. And so we just want to make that clear. We've said that before on our podcast, but I just want to really make it clear um, that the work of the ministry will go forward regardless of the the tax-exempt status. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's our view. And we've actually had this conversation with some people in our our congregation, like, hey, what if what if the government shuts us down again? There's some other pandemic Mm -hmm. or emergency and they say, yeah, church is not essential and uh, they're going to strip us of our 501c3 status. 
and said, that's it. We're yep. done with the 501c3 status. There it is. You know, it's not a, essential to being a church. We haven't had one for the first year and a half. Uh, I think there's some good things of where civil government is trying to promote something that's healthy for the culture, like churches. And so that's why I think 501c3 status is a good thing where it tries to promote the health of these institutions, which are good for the larger culture. But as we shift and, and we become more secular and more hostile to the, the Christian faith, there may be a time where, yeah, we just have to walk away from that and say, yeah, we're, we don't need the 501c3 status to be the church and we'll continue yeah. to do what we do. And uh, yeah, so that's just a, that's just a uh, no brainer to me. Yeah. Whenever we are asked to do something that violates uh, God's commands, we'll drop whatever government benefits we have. Amen and amen. All right. Well, Brett, thank you so much for being with us, for having this conversation. This has been helpful and insightful. I've learned some things and I've been in the church for over a year. So (laughs) super glad. And I'll see you tomorrow. Good. Um, I'll see you ladies tomorrow morning at church. Yep. Yeah, we'll see you there. Take care. Thank you. Good night. Thanks, guys. Thanks. All right. That was good. Yeah, I learned some things. Hopefully uh, we'd love to hear from you, your thoughts about the show and the interview and what you learned from it and maybe some ideas to take back to your church or your home church, I think. Um, or if you're thinking of starting a house church, just let us know your thoughts and what you, what you got from the conversation. Yes. And with, with that, that, we're out of here. Have a great week, you guys. God bless. Thanks for listening to all the things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.